welcome to Doing Diversity in Writing, the podcast where we, as writers, explore the do's and don'ts of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany Ann Tucker, and with me is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Let's get started. Hello, Marielle. How are you doing this week? Hey, Bethany. I am fine. How are you? Did you uh, kind of uh, get back on track after the release of the book? <laughs> I I don't feel back on track yet because releasing is an ongoing process. Like I was working on getting reviews yesterday and putting the book up on various sites and my book got pirated. Um, one of my readers let me know. So I was like, oh, it got pirated within 20 hours or so. Okay, that's cool. What? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. That's, that's awful. Both books, both A Queen's Enforcer and A General's Claim had already been pirated and looked at 2300 times. Is it, is it the genre maybe? I don't know. Because there's... Don't know. So we'll see. We'll see. I sent them a letter saying to take it down. Well, but I'm also he... not going to stress about it. No, I mean, <laughs> people are reading it then. Yeah. I mean, hopefully they'll go buy the rest of it. Yes. But no, oh. but no um, there's been a lot going on this week. And I'm just going to preface this episode because we are talking about diversity here. And... I passed out early this morning. Like I got up to go use the facilities and my husband and my boyfriend had to come scrape me off the floor because I was unconscious on the bathroom floor. So yeah, I'm a little shaky, but I'm here. That sounds pleasant. (laughs) Very much so. Because for me, passing out is like a screaming nightmare because I don't go somewhere peacefully. It's like yelling in my head and I wake up with this really big headache. Yeah, I vastly prefer it when I'm like medically put under. Yes, I am so seeing the sort of the perks of having a husband and a boyfriend. Yes, yes, very much so. (laughs) My boyfriend thought that someone was breaking into the house because my husband was trying to get the door open around my unconscious body. It was very much fun for both of them, but I was, you know, unconscious for most of it. (laughs) So, so too soon, maybe, for you to laugh about it. It's fine. They were great. We've been through so much together. Like, we've scraped my husband off the floor to go to the ER about a year ago. And, you know, we've all had our things happen. I, I, I actually think I remember that. Yeah, Polly for the yeah. win. It's nice to have, like, extra people around sometimes. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, it's like a, a spare Yeah. So one of the things that happens when I have incidents like this is I can swap nouns a lot. So if I swap something, it doesn't sound right, quite right. Either interpret it for yourself or maybe Marielle will call me out and we'll just keep going. If I catch it, (laughs) if you catch it, it sounds really weird. I might go like, what are you saying? Yeah. But the Uh, thing is, I'm still here. So we're still doing this. And I'm, I, I, I applaud you um, that you're here. 
Thanks. So let's see. Let's see if we can make it through the episode without you passing out again and me having to try to reach your partners. Well, you're Cyprus. I yeah. I really appreciate that you are a co-host that doesn't like flip out because so many people will be like, oh, you passed out. Oh, no, it's the end of the world. And you're like still rolling with it. I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, you're sitting in front of me. Yeah, but not everyone's cool with disabilities like this it scares a lot of people no i mean i'm just glad that i have some way of contacting your beloveds so if i do see you disappear from my screen i know who to message yeah yeah and i also fine. mean they're both home and i know that i don't think i would be as comfortable if both of them were not in the house right now i know they're somewhere in your house with you yes they are yes they will check on me so that gives me comfort. <laughs> All righty. Okay. So um, I'm glad you're not passing out. Only one of us should be doing this at a time. Yeah, I'll do next week. <laughs> Please don't. It's definitely an experience you can pass on if you can't. Go swim in an ocean, soak in some zen, come back, tell us about that. I will. All right. I haven't so passed out in ages, but... Well, yes. This is not what we're going to talk about today. No. So today we're going to talk about something that's both very tangible and intangible at the same time. Marking the unmarked. And I am ridiculously excited about talking about this. (laughs) I really am. Um, No, but like last week was my nerdy episode. Um, Well, not not just last week, but this one is like really you're like, "Ah, geeky. Yes, so, it very uh, much is. Yes. This so is why we're doing st- it together. Yeah, but so try to not stop any nouns so you can be your full geeky, nerdy self here. I'll do my best. So okay. as writers, we mark all the time. We mark characters, we mark landscapes, ideas, items, pretty much anything that's in our stories either gets marked or is left unmarked, and both are significant and influence the reader's experience. So let's break down what marking is. Yes, because this is a lot. Like the research you dug up, it's, it's, it's intense. So I'm going to start here. Let's recognize the fact that marking something as what it is opens up the possibility that it could have been something else. I think this is a really significant point, and it's something we'll come back to several times during this episode, this particular point. Marking a person is what they are literally acknowledges that they could have been of, let's say, different religion, nationality, heritage, sexual identity, or age. Exactly, exactly. So just acknowledging that someone could have been something else opens up the imagination in the reader. For example, if I'm writing a scene with a pastor in a church and I never say male pastor, almost everyone will think that the pastor is a man. But if I say male pastor, then suddenly there's space for that gender of that pastor to be something else. Yes. And there are so many places in writing fiction where this is applicable, right? And and beyond gender too. Like mm-hmm. what if we started identifying people with pale skin instead of what often happens, which is identifying or marking the skin of those who are darker, different from what we have come to expect. Yes. And like I said, this gets me really excited. When I lived abroad, I realized just how much not having an identifier, or at least many identifiers, can be a privilege. Talking about this can cause discomfort 
I know, but it doesn't have to. I'm going to give permission to everyone listening to just set aside that for a moment, that discomfort. And it is currently safe while you're listening to this and even encouraged to use identifiers for the rest of this episode. Which actually reminds me is that we haven't necessarily marked all our, our own unmarked. Like, for example, when I introduced myself, I introduced myself as a white woman, but I've never said that my partner is a white woman from the Mediterranean. But we did talk about your Black partners multiple times and the fact that they're Black. Yes. And in a different world, we wouldn't need to mark anyone necessarily. But we're here. We need to mark. We need to open up space to more possibilities. Yes, we do. So let's get down to those basics. Okay, let's do it. I'm going to nerd out for a bit, like you told everyone I was going to do. But I promise this is absolutely (laughs) relevant. And for all the word geeks out there, you should enjoy this. You ready? I am ready. All right. The history of the terminology, quote, marking the unmarked, unquote, comes from linguistics. It refers in its original usage to marked and unmarked terms in languages. So this is immediately relevant because we are talking about writing. We're talking about language. Yes. I was the kid that used to grab grammar books at 12 and read them for fun. So it is is totally relevant all the way through. Anyway, the concept originated with a Russian linguist, Nikolai Trebeskio. I don't say Russian names very well. I apologize. Um, But his name will be in the show notes if you want to look up the spelling. He lived um, from 1890 to 1938, only 48 years. Marked and unmarked terms were terms he used to refer to contrasting pairs of terms. For example, the verb cook and then the verb cooked. Cook is the unmarked term. It is simply itself, C-O-O-K, in its default state, the unmarked neutral state. But cooked, C-O-O-K-E-D, has been marked by the E-D to designate something is different. In this case, it's been moved into the past tense. Still with me? Yes, I am. But I do have somewhat of a background in linguistics, mostly philosophical, but still. So just grammarly speaking, what level are we we requiring here? Like... For our listeners, I think a yes. third grader can understand the default form of a word, the ed form versus the ing form, etc. They've all been marked with a suffix. Okay, so so yes, there's this, the default form of the verb that can be marked with a suffix. So how does this apply to writing our characters? Perfect question. I'm getting there. Um, a little bit more context first, though. We can find literally thousands of examples of marked and unmarked pairs in language before, beyond this first simple example. Let's go a little deeper and we'll get back to the reader experience in the subconscious in just a minute. Okay, go for it. All right. For example, pig is the unmarked default term for an animal in the genus of sus. However, sow is the marked terminology for the female of the species. Thus, the female of the pig family is the marked term. It is only used for female pigs. But English doesn't standardize this, though, do they? No, because English is like a mixing pot of like five different languages at at a minimum at its base. (laughs) (laughs) So I was going to say at a minimum. It's one of the reasons we have so many synonyms in English is because we threw like Britain and Normandy French and all of other things in there. So, no. For example, it is not standardized. Cow is the default and the unmarked term for bovines of any gender, but bull is the marked term for maleness in that species. 
There are several other marked terms for cows, including gelding, calf, heifer, steer, sire, bullock, dam, etc. If you're not into farming or herding, you probably won't care, so I'll leave it at that. But let's refer to the stated definition on encyclopedia.com. The terms, I'm quoting here, the terms are sometimes extended to wider typologically characteristics of languages and also to social situations to distinguish between normal, quote unmarked, behavior and less common variant. As you're saying all this, it's very clear to me that our behavior of marking or not marking something as we write, as we talk, even as we think, is usually invisible to us. It is really invisible most of the time until someone starts talking about it or until you're the one being shockingly marked. You're like, oh my gosh, someone's marking me. Um, We didn't even have terminology to talk about this concept in a meaningful way in linguistics, even though that's where this always happens, until Nikolai Trebiskoy. So far, I haven't found any clear examples of this transferring to other parts of the human existence until the 1990s. So what happened in the 1990s? Deborah Tan published an article called There Is No Unmarked Woman. It was groundbreaking, and I encourage everyone to read it. It will be in the show notes. It's very easy to read, a narrative mostly. that starts with her walking into a conference and being with the same people for several days. I'll quote from her article. Quote, as I amused myself finding coherence in these styles, I suddenly wondered why I was scrutinizing only the women. I scanned the eight men at the table, and then I knew why I wasn't studying them. The men's styles were unmarked. End quote. So in the article, she describes what the other women were wearing and how they presented themselves. And then she explains how she came to use the terms marked and unmarked. I'll quote again. The term marked is a staple of linguistics theory. It refers to the way language alters the base meaning of a word by adding a linguistic particle that has no meaning on its own. The unmarked form of a word carries the meaning that goes without saying what you think of when you're not thinking anything special. It's like your example of the male pastor, right? If we don't mark pastor, we'll assume the pastor's male. Mm -hmm. And the same with words like professor, surgeon. I'm sure you know this old riddle, like a father and a son are in this terrible car accident and the father is killed. So the son is rushed to the hospital. But just as he's about to go under the knife, the surgeon says, I can't operate. The boy is my son. Right. That's because even now, I would say, we assume a male gender when we don't mark the job with the label, fe- with the label female. Same way you would assume the surgeon to be white if you don't mark them as non-white. Yeah. I don't have biological children of my own, but there are plenty of children that I've cared for and helped raise. So this is really for me easy for me to see it. Think about shopping for children's clothes. If you have a daughter, you've probably had to make judgment calls of the length of a dress, a skirt, a pair of shorts. So you've had to decide, will I let my child wear the I am a princess t-shirt, you know, big, splashy, sparkly letters across the front. What sort of swimsuits do you consider, you know, acceptable for them to wear? Shopping can really be a minefield. It's so much marking beyond gender but then what kind of identity within that gender are you a princess are you a tomboy it's almost impossible in young girls clothing to make an unmarked choice even trying to not mark them is marking them 
there's a lot of performed gender norms in childhood. And then, of course, beyond that, like I remember when my cousin suddenly didn't want to wear her favorite dark blue sweater anymore. She'd never cared much for dresses. And so she didn't have that many. But from one day of one day to the next, and I don't think she was talking at the time. Mm. I don't think she had reached that age yet. It was just tantrum time every time my aunt was dressing her and didn't put a dress on her. And at the same time, like when you talk about this minefield, it's much more accepted for a girl to wear boys clothes than it is the other way around. And children's clothing that might pass as unisex, the thing is that they have none of the pink, the frills, the princesses, right? So unisex clothing to me anyway, it's much closer to boys clothing. The unmarked nail. Yeah. Yes. Um, my sister sent out a picture recently. My nephew was infatuated with having pink hair. So she got the spray on temporary dye and gave him pink hair. And he was so happy. And he's running around in his Spider-Man t-shirt with pink hair. And I was like, dude, you have every choice in the world. That's awesome. Yeah. But um, by the way, I'm also, I don't think either of us are saying um, that it's all bad, this marking. I mean, it's fun to dress up. I wish clothes made for females girls were sturdier, like lasted longer. Cause, oh my gosh, I have to buy clothes faster than the guys in my life. They wear out so much faster. Um, but it's totally okay for a girl to want a big fluffy princess dress. That's not the point we're making here. No, no, not at all. Um, Cause you can be, it, it's the point we're making is um, that there's much more marketness going on there. Um, and that when buying clothes for boys or men, you can make completely unremarkable choices and it won't be really noticed because they meet a standard that's so standard, it's invisible. Exactly. Invisible by numbers, literally. Um, growing up, I'd check my brother's drawers as they got bigger. So many kids, we passed a lot of clothes down. And it was like, let's see, you have five pairs of jeans, no holes in the knees yet, three polo shirts without stains, 10 shirts for planing. You're good. It was so easy. So easy. I, I bet. But just because someone has the privilege of being unmarked, that doesn't actually mean it's always helpful to them either or that that's what they want for themselves. For example, women can play with their clothes more and it's not such a big deal. It's expected, but it's different for men. Like when they do play, when they want to play, it is a big deal. Then they are certainly super marked. Um, <laughs> like remember the time that Obama wore a tan suit? Cannot forget it. The media totally blew it up. Uh, it made a suit marked by changing the color. And as a black man, again, we're talking about intersectionality. The first black president of the U.S., it became a whole thing. And I won't go down that rabbit path too much. Obama was already marked by skin color, so everything else was augmented. Exactly. So, but it goes to show that marking and unmarking can get layered, right? Yeah. But before we get sidetracked, let's refocus. What does this concept, marked versus unmarked, mean for our writing, specifically for fiction writing? Thanks for keeping me on track. Well, <laughs> marking affects many levels of writing, as I've already mentioned before. To start with, this concept will appear in characters, dialogue, internal dialogue, character descriptions, landscapes, or item descriptions. Marking and unmarking happens all the time for our characters. They do it, and we do it for them above and beyond that. For example, 
how we describe our characters marks or unmarks them, and how they describe or quote unquote see the world is an act of marking and unmarking that they're doing. Such actions can even drive a story. Right. So when we're writing a character, we have to think about what they see or don't see, what they uh, what like what do they notice or ignore, and how do their backgrounds affect that? So what's happening in their internal dialogue? Like every decision around this becomes a vehicle for telling a story without telling. It paints the character's experience of the world. And taking all of this into consideration makes us better storytellers. And this is why I geek out over it. <laughs> um, it also gives, it gives us a chance to take conscious control. Our language is given to us by where we were born, who our parents or guardians were, where we went to school, etc. We learn through mimicry, miming what we see in the beings around us. Um, if we never examine our language and the baggage that's wrapped up into it and handed to us, we never really realize that it's there. We don't even know what we're saying. Language has so much baggage. It does. It really does. And so much interesting and fascinating history, especially if we're writing diverse characters and telling diverse stories. But we'll come back to that. Um, I have an example of how we subconsciously use marking and unmarking in daily life. I accidentally ran into this experiment or yeah, my first year of college. That is the right place to experiment. Oh, right? definitely. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's what you go to college to experiment. Um, it's, it's like a playpen that's not so safe. But I was taking an intercultural communications class and it was absolutely fantastic. Me and two guys were assigned to present one of the chapters in our textbook. It was on nonverbal communication, which is actually such a big deal in writing. It is. It might not be the first thing you think of, but it really is. It really is. So getting back to the presentation that I was doing with these two other students, we each decided to dress in a way that signaled a certain identity to the class, our, our classmates. One of us was literally flamingly gay. I believe that is the term he used when we were planning the presentation. Um, <laughs> he was thin, bleached blonde, sensual, gay pride pins all over his rucksack. He explained that he'd had to hide these things in certain neighborhoods he'd lived in before to avoid being physically assaulted but he flaunted them when he was in other neighborhoods. Hmm. And then um, the other student, the last presenter, he wore a scarf in his country's colors. He was an international student. And he showed off different ways that the brands and pieces of his outfit signaled pride in being from his country. Um, it was in South America, but it's been over 10 years now. I can't remember which country at the moment. Um, and then me, I dressed up close to how I would have been if I had stayed in my ultra conservative community. I covered my head in a headscarf. I wore a dress that came up to my neck, like really tight, covered my arms to the wrist all the way to my hands and went down to my ankles. Um, was very different from my regular school uniform as shorts and a t-shirt that I wore every day to class. That is very different from how you dress right now. Oh yes, most certainly. Um, thank goodness. Um, Though with so many mosquitoes in the yard, sometimes I think about going back to it as self-defense. I'm sorry. By the way, what happened with your, uh, with your experiment? Um, well, the three of us showed up to class uh, demonstrating not telling our identities. So we came in together. Uh, we made everyone very uncomfortable because we put the chairs in a circle. 
and then ran the presentation by standing in the center of the circle. So no one could hide. No one could slump at the back of the class. Everyone had to be physically faced with who we were. Um, the teacher was really happy. Our classmates were like half grumpy, half okay. They weren't ready for this at 8.30 in the morning. Um, I think being presented so strongly with these identities was disconcerting. And then because we put the chairs in a circle, they couldn't hide. And we talked frankly about that and what we had done and why we did it to their faces. So yeah, there was a whole bunch of relief when the teacher went to the second part of class and they all got to move their chairs again. <laughs> Afterwards, however, I went on my own without my classmates, they had other places to be, to the cafeteria. And here's where my accidental experiment happened. So I'm dressed, my hair's covered, everything. People who knew me, who knew me well, walked right by me. Nobody talked to me. Nobody met my eyes. Their gaze slid right over me. I was so heavily marked in my outfit, the ankle length dress, the head covering, that I was not recognized. I'd marked myself out of connection with those around me. It was really alienating. I'd enjoyed dressing up, but now that I was here outside of class, surrounded by people I knew, I was being treated like an absolute stranger. It was not comfortable. Yeah, that doesn't sound comfortable at all. Because no. you were suddenly really marked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I lasted about 10 minutes before they pulled the scarf off my head. And then suddenly, almost immediately, people joined me at my table. So when I'm writing, like if I'm thinking about this example, I can extrapolate ideas of how my characters might dress or might be treated if they don't dress to conform. Yes. Or think about any type of markedness and how the characters might experience it. I had it easy. I pulled the headscarf off and people recognized me as a friend and classmate. But when I lived in rural China, I couldn't take off my face. They, they thought I was part of the Muslim minority uh, community from Xinjiang, those people that are being placed in concentration camps right now. And let me tell you, I got off easy, but you don't just shake that off. Like I had to live with that for a year. Other people have to live with it their whole lives. Yeah, this is, yeah, I get that. Like, this is not what you said. This is not something you shake off at all, um, which which I guess this is why it's so important to consider what is visible and what is invisible, what can be made to be invisible and what is visible or invisible where, in which contexts. Yeah. So when I'm writing a character, taking it back all the way to fiction really closely, I'll consider things like, do they wish they weren't lost in the crowd? Do they want to be marked and recognized? Or do they just finally want to be left alone and invisible? And how do their desires show up in their language? How do they mark others? Believe me, as someone who's been significantly marked for most of my life, you don't just forget that you're marked. It's on people's faces when they look at you, or you can tell by the amount mm. of faces that you see or don't see looking back at you to walk through a store or down a sidewalk. Um, maybe you see a lot of back of heads or the side of faces because people are just like slightly looking away from you. Um, but then they'll throw glances at the side when they think you're not looking. And you end up watching people, watching, not watching you at the same time, thinking, is this going to be good? Or is it going to be bad? Can I get help this time? Or is the wrong person going to, or, or is this the person that I should avoid asking help from? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if, if we take this right down to into story construction, like which of your characters are marked in ways that everyone will see, like positively or negatively, mm -hmm. or is it in ways that only some will see? 
is it a marking of behavior or a visible marker like skin color or clothing or like wearing glasses or what have you, yeah. right? Or are they uh, unmarked and oblivious to the fact, oblivious to the marking and unmarking that's happening around them? And the way we mark characters also gives readers the idea of the role that they will play in the story. Yes, all of that, all of it. I'd add, um, look at their language. How do they mark or unmark other characters in the book? Like even in internal dialogue, how they mark others actually tells the reader so much about who they are as characters themselves, even more than the person they're marking. Mm -hmm. This is actually makes me think of a novel I once edited. It was a romance novel, a, ro a, um, a romance fantasy novel. And the first male character who showed up in the story was described in such a way by the female protagonist that I knew just from those cues that he was going to be the love interest, right? Yep. So the word the word she used to describe his physique, his facial features, how tall he was, the color of his eyes, the time she took to describe the guy and took him in, right? Because what the protagonist focused on said so much about their connections. Um, and, you know, and then he turned out to be her cousin. Whoops. Right. So I was like, what am I reading? Right. Um, so, but as I was, you know, continuing my edits, turns out he wasn't the love interest at all. So I had to explain that to my client that she had accidentally marked a cousin as the love interest just by how she let the protagonist see and describe him. She did not describe him as a cousin that she'd known all her life and had like grown up with she described him as a sort of marvel coming to life in front like wow okay the, yeah. the most beautiful person she'd ever laid eyes on right okay yeah that'll yeah. do so, it yeah so but that's a very specific example from the romance genre i'm sure you have another example um yeah i think a really easy example of this would be the prince and the pauper by mark twain um i love that book growing up uh, the marking and unmarking is really strong here. I mean, the, the prince and the pauper literally switch clothes to mark themselves. Um, and because both sides of society in this book have what they consider marked and unmarked, it's really stark in how they treat people depending on those marked and unmarked characteristics. Mm -hmm. So you could just read that book and be like oh, conscious of what Mark Twain is doing there. But it's like what you said, right? Is that you don't, it becomes conscious when we see a shift, like when we yes. shift it. Then, so when we turn things around or turn things on their heads, that's when it's suddenly obvious. So, yeah, that's the kind of thinking that we need here. Okay, so I think this actually uh, brings us to our next point really well, because uh, I know you wanted to talk about the everyman, the the like the guy who is like the epitome of the unmarked. Yes, the everyman. Um... So if you've read a lot of craft books, you might have heard this term before, if not. Um, there is some privilege and a lot of affection for these types of characters, these everyman characters, but they are very adaptable as we'll discuss. Yeah, so in English literature, right, historically, yep. the default character has been a, a, a white male, not too young, not too old. I, I'm thinking... Characters like Frodo in Lord of the Rings, but Bilbo in The Hobbit, um, Dr. Watson in the original Sherlock Holmes mysteries. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so for whatever language and area you're writing in, take a second and think about what the everyman archetype is for you in your situation, right? This is the everyman within the Anglo-Saxon context, but other contexts will have a different kind of everyman. Yeah. So I learned about this term, everyman, as I studied writing, the everyman archetype. This is the character that can be set into a world um, and that, that's extraordinary or different, etc., and act as the connection to the reader, much like the main character clutching his towel through Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, he's supposed to be the character readers identify with so they can access this alien landscape through him. Exactly. And it's been really useful for writers. Like mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes would have had a limited audience if the story had been told from his perspective. Because Very much so. Yes, because Watson acts um, as the view of a quote-unquote normal person who gets to have the reaction the reader would have had, like dumped into a situation of following Sherlock's nearly, nearly like incomprehensible powers of observation and deduction. We need Watson to translate that for us. Exactly. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. I think I even used Watson as example in my book on developmental editing because it's such a good touchstone. Um, mm-hmm. Going to another widely recognized everyman archetype. One, of, I think you already mentioned this, maybe one of the enduring points of Lord of the Rings is that Frodo mm-hmm. and his desire to save the Shire. That's so everyman. It's a, it's a high touch point of normalcy that carries the readers through the the remarkable because Middle Earth. And when Frodo is like breaking down under the strength of the ring, Sam takes on the burden of being the heroic everyman, literally shouldering Frodo on his own as Frodo's character evolves. Like Frodo becomes more than the everyman. What he goes through changes him. And then Sam becomes the everyman that the reader can relate to. Because while Sam cannot carry the ring for him, he can carry Frodo. I mean... Sam is amazing. Yeah, he's a he's a good boy. Okay, so the uh, um, the everyman for your audience is someone like them, but not completely like them. Like someone with simu- some similar values, class, activities, for example. Yeah, something to hang on to. Like, um, let's do another example: Princess Diaries. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I didn't read the books; I've just seen the movies. But the movies, at least, did this beautifully with Mia, the main character. Um, she started out as a teenage daughter of an eccentric artist who's often embarrassing her and readers, viewers, they can follow her struggles with this new position in life because she starts like them when the whole thing is like, you're a princess, gets dropped on her. Um, her remarkableness is her good qualities as an every teenage girl. So this is an every main character t- type, but not male. Um, yeah. So she's loyal, friendship, her forthrightness, closeness to her family her imperfectly perfect character. That's what people can hang on to as she dives into this new world. Yeah, so here we have, like what you said, we have a character who's like a very good every woman for a young female audience. Yeah, exactly. Mia was very much the every person for that particular subgenre and it worked. It worked really well. So even if we're not writing this every man, every person character, Knowing and understanding the archetype is useful. For example, uh, I'm thinking of Peter Parker, aka Spider-Man. Yes, he is. He's like genius level in in so many things, right? Mm-hmm. Like physics. So he's certainly not an everyman archetype, but 
he's very every man in his crush and MJ in Spider-Man Far From Home. Like he really wants to go on his field trip. You know, he just wants to have like a normal summer, um, even if he's already been in very non-normal situations and he has extremely non-normal friends because he is Spider-Man. Exactly. Um, and I guess that that's exactly why he wants to do those normal things because he's also Spider-Man. Yeah, and because there's so many elements of the everyman trope in him there's so much relatability you just want to cling to him and give him everything he wants yeah yeah so a reader might want to be spider-man because he's awesome but they feel so close to him and even though he isn't the archetype completely it it still works i'm rambling now Mm -hmm. but (laughs) no no but you're right because 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 um like what you said they want to be like Spider-Man because he's like this awesome superhero, right? He's swinging through New York City. Yes. Come on. But he is every man in that his Peter Parker side is, 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 is very every man. So that is why I think like those kind of normal people attributes, uh-huh. I think that's what makes him love so much by fans because he's both. Yes, yes. Which which brings me back to what we were talking about earlier, marking and unmarking. Peter Parker spends most of the the film Far From Home trying to be unmarked so he can have normalcy, but he's marked. He's very marked because of who he knows, what he can do, and eventually who hates him. Um, Becoming Spider-Man marked him in the eyes of the public to the point that Peter Parker publicly cannot exist in the same place. No, and this is why you end up feeling for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really do. And as writers, let's translate that experience of feeling both joy for Peter as being Spider-Man and the sorrow for what he loses being marked as Spider-Man into considering our other characters and how they are marked and unmarked. Writers already understand this concept. If you've been writing on some level, you already understand this instinctively just by, say, enjoying superhero films. Yes, and while superhero films exaggerate, right? it's really useful to learn from them, like especially some of the latest Marvel uh, films. So let's translate those drives and that needs to be like quote unquote normal to a character who cannot stuff a superhero suit into a box and pretend to be normal. Like what if Peter Parker's suit was skin or if he walked around with webbing on his hands like all the time, unable to hide it. Uh, Because if you have webbing on your hands, you can also not wear gloves, right? So, um, or some characters will be able to hide what marks them like you, like you are quite adept at hiding, having seizures. I I cannot tell looking at you right now that you passed out a few hours ago. Um, And I can hide my sexuality and even my anxiety most of the times. Um, But if it can be, like, even if it can be hidden, you have to ask yourself, what does it cost the character? Yeah, and and there's always a cost. Or what happens to the character's internal world when something changes in their lives and they go from being marked to from being unmarked to marked. This often happens to characters in the course of life-changing events. Like for me, it happened when I hit the floor of Starbucks in my first seizure very publicly and an ambulance got called. Um, there's that moment. And these are questions we get to answer and imagine and research as writers. They matter. Mm-hmm. And the same, like if you go from marked to suddenly being unmarked, that does something to your internal world as well. Um, but let's go back to this every man, every person character for a moment. Like this is a very unmarked character 
until something is laid over them, until something happens to them. Like um, Watson becomes roommates with Sherlock Holmes and Bill Baggins, he meets Gandalf, right? But whatever this character does, they do it for themselves. They don't represent anyone but themselves. They rise and fall for themselves. Their story is personal to them in whatever iteration it shows up as. Yeah. But now let's turn it on its head. Let's go back a little in time in American English literature when the everyman character really was a white cisgendered male. And now imagine you've picked up one of these books and you're reading about, say, a British middle-class gentleman. Whatever he does on the page is now representative of all white males in your mind. Anything he does is now a credit or detraction for all white men. Instead of being an individual when the camera zeroes in on him, he's a stand-in for his entire race and gender. His maleness and his whiteness is now remarkable. That's not easy to imagine, uh, as we've discussed in previous episodes. Like, those voices, they are so well-known that they aren't marked. Yet, but it's starting to happen slowly. In 24 years or so, the year 2045, those with the racial designation of quote-unquote white are projected to be 49.7% of the U.S. population. That's less than 50%. Mm-hmm. In 2008, figures came out in the, UK pop, in the U.K. predicting that white Britons would be the majority minority in the U.K. at the current population projections within 50 years. So 2008, that was what, I can't do math right now, over a uh, decade ago. Yeah, so that yeah, so that is uh, in 2058. Yeah, so or within less, yeah, before that. Yeah, less than 40 years from now. Yeah. Okay, so this all means that our default idea of the everyman like will need to change, right? And actually what you're saying is it is already changing. And and white males, like white people in general, they are finding themselves no longer the unmarked like as we record this episode. Yes. Yes. Um, and I do actually feel some sympathy for this. It's, it's weird to say that because I am white, but um, it, it's a bit of a cold splash of water to experience as uh, Paul Campos, I hope I'm saying it right, writes in Lawyers, Guns and Money blog, quote, what identity politics so-called has done is to slowly and painfully and partially transform being a white man in American in America into a marked category and makes a lot of the people who have become white men rather than just members of society's invisible default category very uncomfortable, end quote. Yeah, so people who before were simply human, they are now white men, or to be more specific, they are white cisgender straight men. Yes. I mean, I sort of I sort of feel bad for talking about white cisgendered heterosexual men so often because I feel like I'm picking on them just, you know, by talking about this set as a category. And I'm very, very aware that they are not all one thing and that I care for a great number of individuals that would fit into this category. And I would say that in some genres, such as romance, we should be pointing to the every woman archetype in the English canon, the way we talk about white men more more broadly, because it's definitely a white woman is the default yes i agree although i feel much less bad than (laughs) (laughs) for talking about white cisgender straight men all the time um yeah yeah, you you are you are right like every genre will come with their own every person 
unmarked yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, a character yeah and we need to be critical of all of that yes so we're talking very broadly here and yeah. to be honest i don't really read straight romance much anymore i got really tired of love triangle tra tra tragedies uh, but i'm poly so there's that i'm kind of wired to think that that kind of thing is just over the top like seriously why <laughs> like figure it out yes just communicate people it's a thing okay but to be fair like if every book had everyone poly then monogamous people would feel really left out like they'd become the only marked category that's true all right i suppose we can keep love triangles but i don't have to read them <laughs> well that's the point of their first books there's something for everyone exactly exactly and with print on demand and ebooks it can actually be financially viable viable to write for more niche markets and take risks on who is in our books too um but excuse me but i'm looking at the clock here and we've gone on for a while shall we talk next week about language and using marked and unmarked language more specifically more marking i swear you do not have to give out any grades though i might Okay, because my, my, my academic days are over. So yes, let's do that. So this week, we don't have a checklist or any bonus material because our conversation about marking the unmarked is far from over. Exactly. I mean, people can think about their favorite movies if they like, but no, we don't have any bonus material. Okay, then I will talk to you next week. All right, talk to you next week. Hi, everyone. Mariella here. If you're ready to write that book you've always wanted to write, but you just don't know where or how to begin, my intensive three-month one-on-one coaching for writers program is for you. During the program, we'll figure out why you're not where you want to be, what your needs and goals are, and what kind of writing habit fits your life best. Depending on the tier you choose, you get at least three 60-minute coaching calls, two email check-ins per week, weekly worksheets to help you set, plan, track, and reflect on your goals, and personalized prompts and exercises that will help you dig deep to get out of your own way. Starting dates are the 10th of January, the 7th of February, and the 7th of March. Go to mswordsmith.nl slash coachingforwriters2022 for more information and to enroll. Thank you for listening. Music for this show was written and produced by Eric Mills. If you want to join the conversation, fill out our writer and reader questionnaires. Both can be found in the show notes and on our website, representationmatters.art. That's dot A-R-T. If you want to be the first to hear when a new episode comes out, sign up to our newsletter. And if you found this helpful, Please rate and review on your favorite podcast app to help other writers find us too.